welcome to Rome Cooney Bible Church, where we desire to become a worshiping community of grace and truth by sharing the love of Christ locally and globally. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today, uh, pausing from the book of Acts, and we'll be taking a pause today as well as next week. Um, and so we'll be looking kind of at the triumphal entry of Christ as we look at what Passion Week entails for our Savior. Um, while you're turning there, just uh, give you guys a little personal update. My family and I were able to go skiing, snowboarding up at Baker for the first time since we've been here. So we made it up there finally. Um, and so that was good. Our kids, this was their first time ever doing skiing uh, and snowboarding. And they, they woke up so excited. Like I woke them up early and like, I'm like, hey, let's get up there. Um, and there's this anticipation that they had. And I don't know. I kind of talked to them afterwards. Like, what were you expecting? You know, and I think because my boys especially, they like to like skateboard a little bit or something. So they kind of in their mind thought there was going to be one thing like that. And so they had this expectation that it was going to be this like this great time. And then, you know, if you've ever done anything like that, you kind of spend a lot of time on your bottoms in the beginning. And so they did, but they got the hang of it. And then I'm like, okay, they did the little tow rope that they did. And then we went up on one of the chairs, which was fun and exciting just to see them try to get on it and then get off of it, which is a challenge in itself too. Um, but there was this anticipation. They were excited. They, they, they couldn't sleep that well because they're like looking forward to it. Well, here we come into the passage of Scripture that there's this excitement, anticipation for us as believers that we should feel and know because this is leading up to what we all, why we all meet is because Christ is alive. But as our Savior, who conquered sin and death, had to endure, we're going to kind of look through what that looks like in his week. Uh, author David Mathis, he described the Passion Week these, as the most significant eight days that we're coming to in history. Starting would be today, looking at the triumphal entry. And so with that, will you pray with me as we go before the Lord? God, thank you again for us to gather together uh, as a church. Thank you that we can... Um, Reflect on your truth. And Lord, we want to approach your word humbly, especially a familiar passage. Um, but what a passage it is, it points to our Savior as King. One who came conquering sin and death. The one who we look to as our victorious King. And so we want to have the right hearts, the right mind as we approach your word this morning. Uh, I ask that the Holy Spirit would bring to uh, our hearts and our, our bring up to in our lives things that aren't pleasing to you where we're convicted, but we just cast it before you and knowing that Jesus is King as we surrender, as we come into terms and say He's worthy. So thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Really, everything in Scripture is leading up to this moment. Um, it's kind of like the plot is being laid before it and it's getting to the climax is right at this moment in Jesus' life. But even going through the Old Testament, when you look in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3, when the fall took place, there's also God gave a promise as He was talking to Adam and Eve and He talked about that there would be the snake crusher. And God was pointing to who? Jesus. And so even as we look and follow through the pages of Scripture, that was leading to this moment of Jesus' ministry, leading to His death and His resurrection, that the snake crusher was here. 
If we follow through, even God's sovereignty of, over His plan was that through the uh, prophets, to the actions of the prophets, to even Moses, everything is pointing to Jesus as the one who would come, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul ties it in. He says, Now when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And he's saying, hey, at God's perfect time, Christ came onto the scene. But then Paul also writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And Paul understood this, that Christ's birth, His life, His death, His resurrection... God's perfect timing, when it happened, where it happened. Everything was pointed to God's sovereignty and His plan. As we look at the life of Christ, what we see is kind of different roles or functions of Him. He's the prophet, He's the priest, He's the king. And each of these roles, Jesus is fulfilling. Uh, and for example, as a prophet, one was a spokesperson for God's word, or for God. They would say God's word. This was a role of a prophet, speaking God's word. Thus saith the Lord. And so many times we read in the Gospel, especially at the end of chapter 21 of this text, we see in verse 46, after he gives a parable of the tenants, the chief priests and the Pharisees, as they're angry and perceived that Jesus was speaking about them, it says they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So even Jesus was labeled that, but more so Moses at his, towards the end of his life, he was talking about in Deuteronomy 18 about the one that would come after him would be this prophet that's greater than him. And so again, Moses was even talking about the one that would come, the prophet, the best, the, the total, like capital T and P prophet, I guess you could say, was Christ. But prophets, as they spoke God's word, this is where Jesus is the ultimate, if you will, that role, because he is the word. John 1, 1, or I should say John 1, the whole first chapter talks about that Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Jesus fulfills that. As a priest, Old Testament priests served as mediators between humans and God, and it was a priest who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And here Jesus is the ultimate high priest, the mediator, as well as the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 tells us that we have such a great high priest who ascended into heaven, and then Jesus is king. He's the conquering king who rules and reigns over all. In our passage today, we really see that picture, but Jesus is also a unique king because we see how he comes into the city of Jerusalem. Start in verse 1 with me, reading. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... Jesus and the disciples, and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the roads, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We'll stop there. In this passage, which is unique because we see Jesus riding into the city, praises from the people, fit for a king, but yet he's not on a war horse, if you will, nor does he have a sword in his hand. He's on a humble beast, if you will, and not with a sword. But yet Jesus is a king who rules and reigns. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56-57 through 57 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is King because of, we see Jesus' deity and humanity. Fully God, fully man, on display. When Jesus, before He was born, there was an announcement given by the angel Gabriel to Mary. And it said, He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give Him to the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom there will be no end. So even the announcement that was given before the birth of Christ was one of a king. It says He'll rule or He'll reign and that his kingdom, there'll be no end. David was king over Israel, and God told David that there would be always a king on the throne, his covenant that he made with him. And this was foretelling that Jesus, who reigns forever, who comes with all authority, is king. And just like a king who rules not just has a title, but rules a people and rules a kingdom. And this is Jesus proclaiming that truth. It's almost like him claiming what his, is his in that moment. In Matthew chapter 21, uh, commentator Andreas Kostenberg, he writes this, By this intentional symbolic action, Jesus was clearly communicating his kingship to expectant crowds of Passover pilgrims by fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, that Israel's future king would come riding on the fowl of a donkey and by copying Solomon's entrance into Jerusalem, when he was declared king. And so here we see Jesus declaring himself king, but like I said, he's a unique king. He's a king like no other. He's riding a colt, not a mighty war horse. He fulfilled what the prophet Zechariah wrote about the Messiah. Timothy Keller, he writes, makes this interesting point that, that it is a steed fit for a child or a hobbit, but not a king. And just so you know, like Lord of the Rings, hobbits, they rode like that. So anyway, just making sure you know. <laughs> but by them placing palm branches on the ground and their cloaks on the garments would be like someone walking down the red carpet. It was a sign of honor, royalty, and kingship. Yet their understanding of what that would look like was different than Jesus' intention. They wanted a king here and then. And Jesus says, no, there's one forever. And that is He. The One who helps free you from not oppression in that moment, but for all eternity from the oppression of sin and death. 
His majesty and his deity is on display in this passage. Jesus is king. I would like to just point out different aspects of how this is highlighted in this passage this morning. Uh, Bear with me because there's a lot, but I'll go over them somewhat fairly quickly due to our time. But Jesus is king. Number one, Jesus is the omniscient king. Jesus knew what was needed and where to get it. He told his disciples what they would find, where they would find it, and he even told them, if they're questioned, just say this, and they'll be able to have access to it. Many times we see in the gospel, Jesus knew intentions of hearts. Jesus knew things before people would say them. Jesus even was this ever-knowing, omniscient king. He knew the reason behind it all. In this passage, Jesus was very intentional. As he's fulfilling from the prophet Zechariah, but also as Solomon came into the entrance of Jerusalem, he was mimicking that or pointing to his royalty. Remember, this was a purpose very specific that the king is here. The kingdom of God is present, it's near, and it's also a future kingdom, a not yet. Jesus is king who knows all things, and yet... He also rules over all things. Number two, Jesus is the prophesied king. As mentioned earlier, Zechariah wrote, and Zechariah wrote 500 years before Christ was born. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Also another prophet, prophet prophesied 700 years before Christ, Isaiah. Isaiah 62 verse 11 says this, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with us, and his recompense before him. Like I mentioned earlier, from Genesis 3 through the actions and words of the prophets, Moses in the Old Testament, other prophets, to the promise or covenant with David, it was all prophesied or pointing to the Messiah. And here Jesus is fulfilling that very moment. The Messiah is here, the one that was prophesied the king. Not only is Jesus the prophesied king, he's also the righteous king. Israel had history of some good kings and a lot of not so good kings. I love how scripture's honest. You know, you get to see the good and the bad. Even the beloved King David who is a man after God's own heart, was not perfect. Here Jesus stands out from all of them, though, because he is the righteous king. Solomon, who stands out as the wisest king, yet failed in many areas. David, who is one pointed higher than failed. And Jesus, though, is the righteous king, the perfect king, the one who did not sin. Yet Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the righteous King, and He had to be the righteous King. In order for there to be a good and holy or righteous sacrifice, one had to be righteous. And yet, here's our king before us, and one who endured so much. 
the one who has all authority, the one who is righteous in his rule, who is perfect, he is king. Not only is Jesus the righteous king, but he's also, number four, the trustworthy king. Jesus came to do and did what he came to do. Everything in Jesus' life was pointing to this moment. It's almost like his face was set towards the cross, knowing that that was what was needed for salvation, but that was not the last word. And so as he was pointing towards or leaning or his face set towards Jerusalem, he came to do and he did what he came to do. Jesus never gave in to temptation, though he was tempted. We could trust him in what he says because he has fulfilled as well as did or fulfilled what he said he came to do. And so as we see that, he's trustworthy. And I guess that's kind of sometimes an oxymoron in our day and age where a leader is trustworthy, or at least it seems rare. But yet, Jesus is the trustworthy king, who's the righteous king, who's the all-knowing king. Jesus is the king. As he came to do what he was going to do, and he did it fully, we know that he's reliable today as well. Can you trust our king today? Oh, yes. Because he fulfilled what he came to do through his life, death, and resurrection. As we see in Scripture, he not only fulfilled it, but we can trust in what he says, as well as he says one day he's coming again. He's trustworthy. Jesus is also the divine king. As we see that he's fully man, but also fully God, he's the divine king. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the God-man, the divine King, the one who did not sin, yet took on our sin, the one who humbled Himself by dying on the, on the, the cross. He's the divine King. Number six, Jesus is the saving King. The phrase that was sung by the people, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, means save now. And even though that phrase may be somewhat premature because of the same crowd would cry out later in the week, crucify him. But the fact that Hosanna means save now, Jesus is a saving king, the only one who is worthy and the only one who is able to save. Even the timing of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is significant. As Passover would be approaching, the crowds and the pilgrimage to Jerusalem would be swelling to the city. It said that it would be more than like four to five times its normal population. And so as the crowd was there, people were there, there was this uproar, as it says, about the people welcoming and greeting Jesus, saying Hosanna in the highest, and yet they were wanting to be liberated. Jesus was coming into the city not liberating just a people from oppression then and there. He's liberating from the bondage of sin. He's a saving king. The only one who truly can save us. 
He saves, it goes beyond just that moment, but for all eternity. He is the righteous King, the saving King, the ever-present King, the divine King. Jesus is also the peaceful King. By riding into the city like a conquering king meant that there would be peace because the enemy had been vanquished. It was a sign of declaring like, hey, all is well. The enemy has been taken care of. And so Jesus was pointing to what would soon take place as he defeated sin and death. But not only was it a sign of the enemies of the land being defeated, the type of animal that Jesus rode on was that of peace. Again, it wasn't a war horse prepared to go out to battle. It was one to say the battle has been done. It's over. It's interesting, though, because in that moment, it was almost this ahead of the time. Jesus would face Golgotha. He'd face the crowd. There would be a battle, if you will. But Jesus knew that he would win. Because he's the king. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The saving king also is the one who gives true peace. Church, listen, we can have peace before God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Meaning, we don't have to fear death or judgment because that has been taken care of by Christ on the cross. God's wrath has been bored out on our behalf. And so we have peace with God because we have a peaceful King. But Jesus will ride again. But instead of a colt, He'll be riding on a white horse. And that is of a warrior who will vanquish all evil once and for all. Jesus is also the universal King. By Jesus entering into Jerusalem wasn't just to say, hey, I rule over this place. He was declaring that He rules over every place. He doesn't rule just over one little territory. No, He's ruler and King over all creation. He's over the galaxies, every aspect of creation, even over you and over me, over our lives. He's King over our finances. Should be. King over our time, he should be. He's king over what we do, he should be. He's king. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 paints this picture for us. It says, by, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And as Paul is pointing to this picture of Christ, meaning that He is in charge of, He rules over, He binds all things together, it shows of His divinity, His power, His might. We have that picture. If you look throughout history, there's been different empires that have come and gone. Some that you'd be amazed to see what they accomplished in their time. But they still came to an end. But the kingdom of Christ is forever. It has no end. 
there's no kingdom or world that is outside his power. The one who rules and reigns, who knows all things, knows you and he loves you. The king who rules and reigns over all has true authority. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Number nine, Jesus is also the humble king. Humility doesn't seem to be something that is seen much in leaders today. In fact, there's a certain type of charisma that is expected of a leader. But with Jesus, he's different because he's a humble king. Everything that Jesus did was out of a humble heart from how he lived, how he served, how he even came into the city of Jerusalem. By him riding on a colt, showed his humility. Not a war horse. He came not with an army, but to give his life. He came not with a physical sword, but with the word of God. David Mathis, whose author um, quoted this, if I could quote him, he says, He comes not to brandish his sword and demonstrate his quality to meet popular expectations, but to give his own neck to the knife and display his meekness and uncompromised sacrifice. He comes not to kill, but to be killed. He comes accompanied not by generals and soldiers, but by twelve very ordinary and unimpressive men, one of whom will betray him, another whom will deny him, and all of whom will scatter when the real trouble begins. Jesus was born not in a palace, but in a manger. And yet we're called to have the same mind among us, as Philippians chapter 2 says. The one who gave him himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's our victorious king, but the humble king. Jesus is a messianic king. He's one to be worshipped. In Luke's gospel, we have another detail of this moment. There were Pharisees there, which we saw and read. They're wondering what's going on. But one of the Pharisees in Luke chapter um, 19, verses 39 through 40 says this. The Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, meaning you need to stop them from doing this at this moment. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and this is the aspect of worship that before him. And do you know what Jesus tells them? He says, I tell you, that if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is the king to be worshiped. By the crowd shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, which I mentioned earlier means to save now. But it was not a question, but a declaration of what Jesus is doing. Jesus saved and is saving. He broke the chains of sin. He has defeated death and he's saving lives today. Psalm 118, which was our call to worship, is one of those psalms that Jesus used and actually is quotes in this chapter in different places. Not just here was a crowd is saying, you know, welcoming those who come in the name of the Lord. But later in this passage in chapter 21, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 about the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And it's very significant because it's a pilgrimage psalm, meaning it was one that they would sing as they're coming into the city of Jerusalem, especially during uh, this time of Passover. It was almost like a welcoming psalm that would be sung to the crowds as they're coming in. 
Welcome those who come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it was a statement almost that came every Passover <coughs> that they were used to singing and quoting. But in on one hand, they would declare this anticipation of the Messiah. And when the Messiah showed up, they not only declared the statement, here's the difference, because they would say that statement to many other people. Jesus fulfilled those statements. That's the difference. As they're saying, save now, Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. So imagine a pilgrim or an Israelite coming into Passover in the city. And that's what's being sung. And then a lot of it was this anticipation of one day, one day that there's going to be this person to save us. One day as we pray, save us, O Lord. And then there was that declaration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there's this anticipation. But the difference with Jesus is he is the one that saves. He saves. So as Jesus quotes in this chapter, Later on, he's a chief cornerstone, fulfills that passage of Scripture. Jesus is worthy of praise. Number 11, Jesus is the King who came and the King who is coming. This passage not only speaks of Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem at that moment, but pointing to one day He's coming again. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11-13, through 13, listen to this. The Apostle John, as he had this vision, he said, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The picture is Jesus being the victorious King. So he's the King who came and the King who is coming. Jesus is the restoring King. He makes all things new. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5 says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. As he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Before I was married, I had this semi-pseudo job that everyone teased me about was watching people's homes when they went on vacation. Like, I was the guy that they would call. Before I got married, it seemed like probably my whole summer was spent at different homes. A week here, a couple weeks there, and people just like knew that I would be like willing to do it. And for me, it was kind of nice because it was like, cool. This I guess is like kind of like not living at home, and I got to have a little experience of independence. But I always had this rule that I wanted to leave the place cleaner than I found it. And so I would always go over and beyond and want to clean the house, just like here, here's what it looks like. And most of the time, they were pretty clean anyways, and I just want to make sure that there was no trace of me left there, kind of thing because I wanted to one day hopefully be asked to do it again. Um, I will say, though, there's one family that did not ask me to do it again. Um, my friend Daniel, uh, they had an iguana. And 
The iguana stayed in like they had a separated, uh, you know, uh, 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 garage that was detached from the house, and the iguana was there. And there were certain specific rules on how to feed the iguana and how to take care of the iguana. And it was the last day, and I think I was so focused on like making sure the house looked good that I fed the iguana, but there's a cover that I needed to shut after I did. I didn't. And the garage wouldn't shut all the way. It had like maybe like a two inch gap, the way it was like a farm style door that was open. And so I get a call uh, like pretty late and says, hey, John, um, do you remember closing the lid uh, f- uh, for, the, for the iguana cage? And I said, oh man, I don't know. He's like, cause we came home and the iguana was just chilling on the bush right where the car was. And I was like, well, praise the Lord you found him because I'd feel bad. So that was like the one time I was not asked to do it again. but I did not have an animal die on my watch. But anyway, (laughs) Um, Jesus makes things not just better than who we are. He, as the word restores, as you think it brings it back, he makes it better. Uh, What he's done in you and through you, he says he's made you a new creation as a believer, but even talking about what he's doing in the long run, from the better Eden, if you will, the better garden, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, like everything's pointing to what Christ is doing as well as not only what He's done, but will do. He's a restorer of all things. Number 13, He's the victorious King who conquered sin and death. All enemies are taken care of. The saints are truly vindicated. And I, I think it's not just when we think big picture, like, Yes, we know the devil. We know what Christ is doing in, in the spiritual realm, what Christ has done and will do. I truly believe there's also this mindset that we're vindicated in this life too. And we may not see it right away, but there is a vindication that takes place where Christ, He's a victorious King over all things. And as we look at all these attributes of Christ on display, and this is just scratching the surface, there's so much more that Scripture writes about in Jesus as being who He is as King. But what I want to do and share with you as we close is that as we look at Christ as King, what does that look like in our lives? With anticipation. I hope that you come with anticipation, longing for, thankful for, for our King. Just like my kids who woke up early, excited to go up to the mountain with anticipation, which there was probably some nervousness too. You know, they were like not knowing what to expect. Um, we may have talked to them about getting on and off the lift as being hard, and I think that got to them too. Like, oh no, I got to do this, and I'm still worried. I'll just throw you. You'll be fine. But no. Uh, but same thing is there's this excitement about our king. But I think there, we probably, in a rightful way, have some angst because. Christ is king. And it should cause us to like, oh man, I don't want to just flippantly have this mindset before our Savior. I want to make sure that I'm like, have the right attitude, the right motive, the right response. God the Son, who we see His deity deity and His humanity through this passage as king. He's a king of all kings who is worthy of praise. And I always think like, how if, I don't know if you ever personalize this too when you read scripture, like if I were there, you know, if you were there in the crowd, how would you respond? 
You know, I hope, and I'm like, man, I hope I'd be like, Hosanna, Hosanna. And granted, post-resurrection, we have a different perspective. But I wonder. But I also wonder how many of those in the crowd just went because that's what the masses were doing. Because come Friday, they also sang a different song. Crucify Him. And we don't know how many were in one place or not. We don't know that. But I just know is that there's a response. We could jump from the meaning to Easter as just part of our church calendar, but really, everything we do and why we meet, why we gather, why we go forth is because Christ is alive. And so is Jesus King over your life? Let's personalize that. Does He rule and reign over you as King? Every faucet, every crevice, every moment. Do you part, compartmentalize where Christ is? You're like, well, He's here at church, but my job is different. He should rule over your job. He should rule over your parenting and grandparenting. He should rule over who you are and what you do. Your free time and your work time. Your quiet time and when you're around people, He should rule it all. As I mentioned the passage in Luke where He talks about and quotes from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they questioned Him why He was allowing the people to do what they were doing to worship Him. Um, it was because He was stating equality with God by allowing worship to take place. And they're like, hey, why are you doing that? But yet it was because He said even these rocks if it were silent, would cry out because it's truth. Maybe some of the same crowd were fickle too. We don't know. But as a follower of Christ, we're not called to be fickle or faint-hearted or fair-weathered. We shouldn't be moved by what the world or the crowd around us does because Jesus is King over all. Henry Francis Light who was a Scottish Anglican from 1793 to 1847, had this hymn, Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken. And I just want to read the first stanza for you. He says, Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken, all to leave and follow You, destitute, despised, forsaken, You on earth once suffered too. Perish every fond ambition, all I've ever hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. And that's just, he just says, destitute, despised, and forsaken. This life is never promised to be easy. We'll go through our hardships, yes. But even, he says, you on earth once suffered too. Remind ourselves of our king who's also the suffering king. The one who knew no sin yet took on our sin. The suffering servant and then he says, but yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Despite how hard it is, we, the one who suffered on our behalf, the King, we have the King, Jesus Christ, for those who have called on His name. Will you pray with me, church? God, as we have looked and seen this familiar passage about our 
triumphant king. The one coming into the city of Jerusalem, declaring his victory already. And yes, thanks be to God for our victorious king, our victorious savior, Jesus Christ. The one who knew no sin, yet took on our sin. The one who died in our place, whose blood was shed to cover us. The one who uh, absorbed or took the punishment for our sin. And yet, rose again three days later, conquering sin and death. Thank you. May we be in awe of our King, our Savior. Be in awe of how good He is and His might. And yet, knowing as we go forward, He is King over all, who knows us individually, who knows us and cares for us, who loves us and shown that love. God, if there's anyone here that does not know You, that as they're hearing this, that, that they would know that they are in need of You. That God, the Word says that we're sinners. We are sinners. And we fall short of Your perfect standard. Because of sin, we deserve death. But you, God, give the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. For those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. This is a surrendering to, and Jesus is King, so we're surrendering to the King. That there would be this mindset knowing, saying, not my way, because I've tried it and I've failed, but I want to go the King's way. And as there's a surrendering to, this calling on, it's a belief in what Christ not only came, that He came, but also He fulfilled what He came to do. And that Jesus is alive. As calling onto the kings and turning from sin, this is a turning to sin and turning to Him. And I pray that happens. Lord, thank You for today. Thank You that we get to worship You. Thank You as we anticipate not only coming into Easter, seeing the seriousness of our sin, what Christ endured, but also rejoicing that Christ is alive and He's coming again. So thank you for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And if you would like more information, please visit rcbcbellingham.com.